I think there's a lot of people that can build great real estate, great developments, but how you service your guest, and we break it down into two areas. We break down, you have the guest experience and you have your customer experience. My customer is Nordstrom, Tiffany, Lululemon, whatever. That's my customer. Their customer is my guest. We have to have a great customer experience. They're paying the bills. We have to make sure we have a platform that allows them to be profitable and that allows them to engage their guest on brand. The guest experience is a very different experience. How you're greeted, how you come into the parking, how, what you see, what you touch, what you feel. We talked about the trees, the flowers, the programming, the music, all of those things. If you're having a problem, how you're helped, having a concierge. Nobody in the retail business had done concierge services until we did it at The Grove. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is part of our series on real estate legends, a conversation with Rick Caruso, the owner and developer of three of the country's most productive shopping centers, all in Los Angeles, the best known of which is The Grove. We were meant to do this in person at The Grove, but unfortunately, I came home with COVID from my recent East Coast trip, so we had to do this via Zoom. We recorded on October 12th, 2023. I am one of the few West Coast real estate people who've not experienced the Grove, so was looking forward to having my tour of the Grove as orientation for the conversation, but the COVID got in my way. My visit would also have been the day after Taylor Swift debuted her concert movie, which she chose to premiere at the Grove, so kudos to Rick for being front and center at the epicenter of popular culture. On the pod, Rick and I talk about his career and the evolution of his development thinking that led to the creation of such a groundbreaking, truly genre-shifting part of the built environment in Los Angeles. This was a great Leading Voices conversation and prep for listeners coming west to Los Angeles next week for the ULI fall meeting. Rick touched on many of the themes we hear on Leading Voices again and again around the breakthroughs achieved through focus, hard work, and inspiration of what will truly move the needle for customers writ large in our real estate products. This was a broad ranging conversation, but we only got to scratch the surface on his civic and philanthropic work, his recent run for mayor of Los Angeles, and his thoughts on this moment in time for our troubled West Coast downtowns. This conversation with Rick is another touch point in our work at CRG. Rick is good friends with my ZRG colleague, Michael Castine, and through Michael, we have helped Rick build his team over the years. One of the pleasures of working within a global, integrated, and multidisciplinary firm like ZRG is that we have these synergies across our businesses, which deepens our capability for work across the human capital spectrum for our clients. As always, I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices and that you will find value and wisdom from this week's episode. If so, please recommend the show and your favorite episodes to your friends and colleagues. If you're catching these randomly, you should subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that it will appear in your next up feed. Also, please do invite me as a contact on your LinkedIn so that I know who you are and I can keep in touch on new episodes. And if you have a few minutes, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. And as always, if you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, or want to get in touch about how ZRG can help your company grow, expand, or think through your human capital needs, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Rick Caruso. 
So Rick Russo, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I am sorry we're not in person today, but we're on the Zoom, which is almost as good. And we get to have a conversation with you about life, real estate, a little bit of politics, and Los Angeles. So lots to talk about, and I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Maybe first, just briefly introduce yourself, a man who needs no introduction to our audience, but just say hello, talk about your company just for a little minute, and you ran for mayor recently. So those are headlines that I want to get out of the way up front, and then we're going to drill into all kinds of things about your business. All right. Well, listen, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, the most important thing for me is I'm I'm married to an incredibly wonderful woman who I just had uh, lunch with, along with my daughter. We have four great children, and we've been married for 36 years, together for 38. I feel very blessed with that. And um, I love the real estate business. I love all business, but I love innovation. I love the spirit of being an entrepreneur. Uh, the creativity that can come with that. And I love giving back to the community to be part of, you know, the greater Los Angeles area and very proud of my wife and my family, you know, what they do in the inner city with children that are at or below the poverty line and giving back and giving opportunity to others that are much less fortunate than we've been in our life. Absolutely true. That's who I am. In a nutshell. Okay, I'll take that story. I'm married about exactly the same amount of time, and it is the blessing of my life. And my biggest and most wonderful achievement and the place I got the most back. Yeah, you know, it is. And it's it, you have to work at it, right? It doesn't happen by accident. It's, it's like all good things in life. You have to keep working at it, and it has a great payoff. Yeah. And worth the effort. And it's interesting as you introduced yourself, talk about innovation, because one from when you started your real estate career, the word innovation and real estate didn't necessarily go together. And I think the evolution of your business is the story of your personal innovation against a product type that was well known, but you broke the rules. Yeah. Well, the lucky thing for me was I didn't know there was a rule. Mm -hmm. And I probably would have been less inclined to break it if I knew the rule, but you're absolutely right. You know, I started this business a little over 30 years ago, maybe 35 years ago. And, you know, the business was an indoor mall, two anchor tenants, the anchor tenants basically been are given everything for free. And the mall owner is basically owning what's in the middle. And that's where they derive their revenue and profitability. Yeah. I just, didn't know that that's the way you were supposed to build things. I was building things that I enjoyed and then hoped other people enjoyed. And thank goodness, a lot of people, millions of people do enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I want to talk yeah. about the evolution of that. First, okay. just for those who aren't familiar, what's the size and scale of your business, your kind of geographic footprint, and how many properties you have? And we're certainly going to drill down into the big ones and talk about them in detail. But just give an overview if you can. Sure. So we're based in Los Angeles and all of our properties are in the greater Los Angeles area, with the exception of our resort that we built five years ago, opened five years ago, the Rosewood Miramar Beach, which is up in Montecito, actually on the beach, spectacular property. But the residential mixed use and retail that we have is all in the greater Los Angeles area. We're branching out a little bit more and we're looking to go out of the area. We have, uh, I think, roughly 10 retail properties. 
Mm-hmm. And again, we have luxury apartments. We're building more of those. We've got a really great pipeline of new projects that I'm excited about. And we're looking to do another resort. So we're, we're busy trying to find a site right now for that. Uh-huh. Any of your listeners have any ideas? Send them in. <laughs> they, they will. They, I'm sure there's some sites available right now, but they may not fit the criteria. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> you never know if you don't look. You look at everything, right? So your signature properties are the Grove and the Americana, and I want to drill down on them. And that's where your it feels like your magic came together. But more than almost anyone on the show that we've had before, it feels like you're Getting to those properties was an evolution and a story of you and your career. So I want to start at the beginning, not spend too much time, but let's start at the beginning and then move into how those properties got invented, if that's the right word. You grew up in L.A., you attended law school, your dad was in business. Talk about that and your roots first. Yeah, well, I grew up in L.A. My dad was always in the car business, and then he started a company called Dollar Rent-A-Car, Uh, which really revolutionized the car rental industry at the time. And he was a big big advocate of me to go into law school. I was graduating USC in business school, Marshall School, and really encouraged me before I graduated to keep going on and go to law school, which I didn't want to do, but I was a very compliant son and did it. And it was probably the smartest thing uh, that I did and I was sort of required to do. And while I was practicing law, I was really motivated to not have to practice law. I didn't really enjoy it that much. And so I went to my dad and I said, listen, you make your money on renting cars, but you need a lot of real estate to park them. Mm -hmm. So I've got an idea. Why don't I buy the real estate? I'll lease it back to you. My improvements are asphalt, paint to do stripes and lights. Mm -hmm. And I can take that lease and go to the bank and get it financed because I wanted to build my own business, not with his money, but I wanted to build my own business. And he said, yeah. And he gave me the opportunity to do that, which was incredible. And then I took that same business model and went to budget, went to enterprise and other car rental companies. And all of a sudden I started having these car rental lots in different parts of the country (laughs) while I was practicing law. And then lo and behold, the law firm I was with, which was called Finley Cumble Wagner, uh-huh. it was actually Finley Cumble Wagner, Heine, Underberg, Manley, and Casey, was the, <laughs> crazy. It was the largest law firm in the United States at the time. It was based out of New York. I was in the LA office. And the darn thing went bankrupt. And a partner walked into my office and put a check on my desk and said, Congratulations. You better get down and cash that check because it probably won't clear tomorrow. It was the largest law firm failure in the history of the United States. What it did for me was it forced me to make a decision. And my wife, I went home that night. I had just got married. My wife, I said, hey, you're married to a guy that's unemployed now. I got to figure out what I'm doing. Went down to the local McDonald's on Santa Monica Boulevard. And we sat there and she's the one that pushed me. She said, you love real estate. Start your real estate company. Don't go back into a law firm. Of course. And that's what I did. So let's go back on a couple different questions because you said some pregnant things that were interesting. One is why was law school the best thing you ever did? especially because you didn't want to practice law. Well, you know, I was I was a corporate lawyer and I the the work was interesting. You know, it's basically taking companies public and whatnot. It was interesting, but it wasn't my passion. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going to you're going to spend your life if you have an opportunity to do what you're passionate about and enjoy, 
That's one of the greatest gifts you can have. And if you're doing what you really enjoy doing, you will always beat the competition. And so, you know, what I did was I had this this base of these real estate lots, yeah. car rentals, and I used that as a base to start my business. Um, and you were doing it on the side when you were at the law firm. Yeah, because it, it, it basically took no management. Yeah. I mean, it, it couldn't have been easier. It's a parking lot. Second question going back, you said your father revolutionized the rent car rental business. I want to take us back to that time when dollar rental car was started. What was it that was revolutionary since you talk a lot about innovation? What what was his innovation back then? Pricing a car at $1 a day, dollar rent a car, $1 yeah. a day. And the way he was able to do that was using the Volkswagen that was sort of just hitting some popularity in the United States because the cost of the Volkswagen was so inexpensive. And uh, I think it was a dollar a day and 10 cents a mile, something like that. Wow. But that's what revolutionized it as the pricing model on that. And then he competed with the big guys, Hertz, Avis, and National, to get inside the airports. Because in those days, the airports were locked down. They only allowed the big three to be right. an airport operator. And I was the beneficiary of that because the lots that I was buying for him were outside of major airports around the country that appreciated hugely as airports expanded in the 80s. Yep. Yep. And then there was, you know, there's a crazy, uh, crazy good internal revenue code that says that if the government threatens condemnation or condemns your property, you have three years to reinvest that those proceeds without paying a tax. And as airports expanded, I sold the properties to the airport authority, right? And converted those to retail properties. Just like hyper 1031. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's 1035 is the code, something like that. Okay, cool. So yeah. then you start your own real estate business. You're used to building parking lots essentially, but that's not the, anything like what you do. So how do you then, and what year are we talking about? And you start your business and what do you go into first? So what I go into first is industrial, an industrial building out in Ontario. And I quickly realized clear heights and automatic height loading and all those kind of great things in uh -huh. industrial buildings, although it was very cool. It wasn't my passion. And um, I did my first retail property at the corner of La Cienega, Burton Way and Sam and Senning, uh -huh. and uh, fell in love with it. And you can see the evolution of my properties by going to the first retail project I built where common area space was there, but it was small, mm -hmm. a little, little bit of art, but small. And each property, there was a little bit more common area than the fountain and then more common area in the grove with the lawn, you know, the Americana with a big, bigger lawn. And that was all influenced, Matt, by really our culture and me visiting family when I was young in Italy. And being so taken back and impressed by the piazzas and how they evolved during the day and full of life and full of people and the music and people outdoors eating. And I thought to myself, my God, we got this incredible weather in LA. There's no place like that. You know, you could barely find an outdoor patio in a restaurant. Right. And I said, that's what I'm going to go do. And that's what I did. So what year was that first deal? Uh, I opened the first retail center in 1992. Okay, so 1992. And then when was the Grove? The Grove was 21 years ago. 
Okay, so over a 10-year, 9-year period of time, you do what are more traditional but getting better and better retail centers. And then you make a breakthrough with a grove. So talk about, because of size and scale, it's a whole nother magnitude of what you did and accomplished there. Well, if I could just mention, I think the breakthrough for me was the Promenade of Westlake. Okay, talk about that. The Promenade of Westlake was built about 25, 26 years ago out in Thousand Oaks. Yeah. And that was an outdoor center, surface parking, anchored by a market. Mm -hmm. The innovation out there was we built it as a crescent shape, mm -hmm. which no developers are doing because it's more expensive. That's why they're always built sort of straight. Mm -hmm. And the idea was when you're leaving one spot, you're able to see where you go you right. get this at the travel. But also for the first time in the industry, we mixed a market, a cleaner, very traditional, with a bookstore, Barnes & Noble, with a movie theater, with restaurants, with fashion. So it was inspired and influenced by what would be in a downtown, mm -hmm. a small downtown. And that was the big breakthrough because everybody took notice. Wow, you don't have to build these things with just a market and a drugstore and a dry cleaner and some little shops. Right. That it can actually be, and that actually launched the name, a lifestyle center, because it became part of people's lifestyle going there every day. And that was the big breakthrough. Uh -huh. And then it after that, I did the Commons of Calabasas, basically the same kind of format. I'm going to be out there tonight, by the way. But with the market and the drug, but then the movie theater, the bookstore, and blah, blah, blah. So that was the big evolution. The evolution of the Grove was... We're going to build an internal street that actually doesn't carry a car, but it looks like it would carry a car. And we're going to be true to it. We're going to build a curb, gutters. The street's going to have a crown. The lampposts are going to have a rhythm. We studied streets all over the world. Mm -hmm. The Grove is patterned uh, after a street in South, South Carolina in Charleston, King Street. Yeah. And the dimensions, I really fell in love with King Street, the dimensions of it, the rhythm of the street. But the big breakthrough there was, I'm going to bring in a department store, and we're actually going to be able to see blue sky. That had never happened before. And instead of escalators, we're going to have fountains and trees, and we're going to put a park. And everybody thought that was the craziest idea. How could you waste valuable real estate by putting down grass? <laughs> It's the most valuable thing that we have in our properties is that open space. And does that sit in the middle of the property? It does. Talk about that relationship. Well, th that's a really good question, Matt, because there is an art and a science to how the properties lay out, what the path of the travel is for a person, what they're seeing, touching, feeling, smelling, how they're engaging, where the Nordstrom is, the department store relative to the theater. And the park is in there sort of holding that together, that great community space. You know, and then we get to do fun things. Like we have free blankets that you can roll out. And so you can lay on the grass. And years ago when we did that, somebody came up to me and my team and says, well, what if they steal a blanket? I said, fantastic. Let's put our name on yeah, it. The yeah. <laughs> and then we got advertising inside their home. But also, you know, last night we hosted the world premiere of the Taylor Swift movie. So anywhere in the world, she could have had her premiere. Where did she pick at the Grove? 
And part of that, we can do it because of all this great outdoor space that we have that became, you know, her backdrop to celebrate her movie. And anyway, from here, the grill, we went and built the Americana, did a larger park because we love the idea. We do more programming and events. We do everything from mommy and me's to book readings to, of course, we program it also commercially for pop-ups and launches of products. And at the Americana, we added residential because one of the number one questions we were getting at the Grove was, hey, we love the place. We'd like to live here. (laughs) And the residential at the Americana has been hugely successful. And so now we're actually going back to some of our properties like the Commons of Calabasas, and we're going to add residential. Of course. And we're excited about that. So we're constantly learning and innovating. And we we learn from going out and traveling literally the world and seeing what works and then what doesn't work. <laughs> and some of it is organic downtowns. Others are developments that have been hugely successful or huge failures. And, and you learn from both. Try to avoid the failures the best we can. Right. It's interesting. Around the same time that you were building the Grove, I was doing work with Federal Realty Trust, and they were building Santana. And mm-hmm. Santana Row was uh, patterned in large part after the Roblas, I think, the street in Barcelona. So they yeah. were pulling some of the same concepts and creating a place. I always find it fascinating because, and this is an interesting one, Disneyland's not real. The Grove is not real but a city street is real, but therefore the Grove is real. Disneyland may not be real because of what they're doing there, but the difference between reality and not, to me, is a very interesting intellectual one. But that's what we do in real estate is we create place for people. And you worked pretty hard to create that place. And magic is created. And, And Well, thank you. And place creation is what's really fun. Yeah. And it becomes really fun once you open... And you see people actually enjoying it and and you're enriching people's lives. I mean, that is the business we're in. If you ask me what business you're in, mm-hmm. we're in the business of creating joy for people, enrichment for people. Because if that's my business platform, now I have permission to do a whole bunch of really fun things. If I'm in the business of building a retail center, I can't go build a trolley that goes nowhere, but millions of people ride. But I can build that trolley because I'm in the business of enriching lives. So I get to have kids have fun and watch moms and dads engage on it. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, we get to put big Christmas trees up and have holiday parties. It snows. Well, you can't do that if you're confined to being in the retail business. Well, it can't snow in Los Angeles. I think that's something that all of us in business for especially younger people coming into business is give yourself the permission to define your business very broadly. Don't get bootstrapped into it, something. It's interesting. When I started my search career, I found a quote by Jerry Garcia, and I'm going to misstate the quote, but the quote was, don't be the best at what you do, be the only one at what you do. Yeah. He was the only one who played guitar like Jerry Garcia. It, it yeah. didn't make him better or worse. You couldn't compare him to Eric Clapton. It wasn't appropriate. And you did the same thing. You redefined the thing that you were doing. Yeah, we try to do that every day, you know, and it's it's fun. And that's why we love doing it. And, uh, you know, I love being around a bunch of people like I have here at the company that 
are very creative and very innovative. And then we get a lot of inspiration. You talk about Disneyland. I mean, we've studied Disneyland. We work with the folks at Disney. Disney studies us. We share a lot of information back and forth. We worked with them to help them rethink their downtowns in Paris. We worked with them in Hong Kong. We worked with them in Orlando, uh, Shanghai. No compensation, just sharing our ideas and our thoughts. And we learn a lot, the path to travel, the experience. So, so talk about the other side of that, because I'm curious about the thing that Disney was or is famous for is also customer service. And I think a big part of your delivery is your people and your business model of welcoming, not just the hardscape stuff. So talk about that. No, that's a great question. Yeah. Listen, I think there's a lot of people that can build great real estate, great developments, but how you service your guest, and we break it down into two areas. We break down, you have the guest experience and you have your customer experience. My customer is Nordstrom, Tiffany, Lululemon, whatever. That's my yeah. customer. Their customer is my guest. We have to have a great customer experience. They're paying the bills. We have to make sure we have a platform that allows them to be profitable and that allows them to engage their guest on brand. The guest experience is a very different experience. How you're greeted, how you come into the parking, how what you see, what you touch, what you feel. We talked about the trees, the flowers, the programming, the music, all of those things. If you're having a problem, how you're helped, having a concierge. Nobody in the retail business had done concierge services until we did it at the Grove. And then when we did it, we got rated by the Wall Street Journal as the best concierge in the country. We beat the Four Seasons, the Ritz-Carlton. And so we have incredible training programs consistently for our people. We have a whole team of people. That's all they're doing is training people on guest services, and supporting and creating that enjoyment on the property. And the answer at the end of the day is yes. You know, what do you need? The answer is yes. <laughs> you paused yes. there. I wasn't sure what was coming. <laughs> no, we make it happen. We make it happen. It's so interesting. When I've traveled abroad, I'll tell three really quick stories because they fit this. One is when I was a kid, you know, this is 40 years ago. I'm traveling through Europe and they had coffee shops. And my heart felt really cool sitting on the street drinking a cup of coffee. And in America, you couldn't have, there's no coffee shop. So Starbucks gets created on that same model. Yeah. And then you, with concierge, you're making me think of being in a department store in Japan where they greet you when you walk into the department store instead of you walk around going, oh, oh what am I going to do? Right. And so if you, it, and then when you walk down the street and the streetscape feels good and works the, with your rhythm of life. And it, it happens more in Europe. It happens more in places that grew organically, but that was created. And you yep. observe those things. Yep. And it's so simple, right, man? It's just literally so simple to be able to just greet somebody and ask what they want and how can we help you? Um, and people don't do it. Now, it takes training, it takes time, and it costs money. What we do is a very different revenue model and business model than other developments, other retail centers, indoor malls. Because if you took what we're doing on our properties, and I said, you know, would say to somebody, you know, okay, why don't you have a trolley? Oh my God, the cost of operating that trolley. Well, yeah, it's a big cost. 
it also changes your experience on this property, even if you never step on the trolley. Right. It's the fun of seeing it go by, kids <laughs> laughing and watching a mom holding her young child on their lap, having that experience together. It just makes you feel good. If you feel good, you spend more time where you're at and you turn out spending more money. Right. And that's one of the reasons our sales per square foot on our properties are in the top of the country. We have three centers in the top 10 in the United States. And it's not by accident. And it's, you know, it's partly because they're maintained very well and architecturally they're very attractive and they got really smart operating people and all of them, they're safe and clean. But a big part of it, the secret sauce is when you're at the property, you actually feel good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you feel good, you don't want that to stop. So you stay as long as you can. It's interesting when I go to a shopping center to get my groceries, it is just transactional. It's not experiential. Right. I don't have time for experiential, basically. <laughs> but, right. but when I have experiential, it makes my heart sing and I love it. Right. And so you're able to capture that for those folks. And it's actually not expensive to do that because you're making more per square foot. So it's, it's actually the ROI on that's probably pretty huge. Oh, it is. I mean, you know, we, we have we have grown, this company has grown on average about 18% K here, which is unheard of. Mm -hmm. But it is expensive, but it's compensated by the revenue. Of course. Right? And to your point, it you know, shopping centers were built to be transactional. They were designed to be transactional because the owners of the shopping centers and the storekeepers, they wanted that parking lot to turn as quickly as possible so you didn't have to build more parking. It was sort of the Ray Kroc idea with McDonald's. Don't make the seats too comfortable. Get people to eat and then leave. And then right. you sell more. <laughs> um, and we did it differently. We actually built more parking per square foot. We built our parking stalls wider so they were easier to get in and out, especially for moms with babies, because you got strollers coming in and out and car seats and all those kind of things. And we designed places that we want you to stay longer not to be transactional, even if you were just going to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not going to go there to go to the grocery store because I'm going to get sucked in and it's inefficient to be transactional. So I'm going to go somewhere else to be transactional, but I'm going to go to your place to have lunch during what I do there. Yeah. One, one thing that's interesting is their size and scale matters here. And so for your big projects, it works. You can't put a trolley in a, in a corner strip center. It's not going to work. Right. And making a big bet. I was, have you been to the wharf in DC yet? No. And I was just back in DC Got, uh, two weeks ago. Where's the wharf? It's on the Potomac river and it is near the, the office buildings in Southwest. And it was where the old fish market was. And mm. they did an amazing job of building a waterfront property, I should give you the statistics on number of office buildings, I think four, three hotels, three condos, humongous project. But what worked is that they created a humongous there, there all at once. And if you create half of there, there, it will never get the traffic that it needs to have. It won't have the critical mass to be a place. And it also takes massive confidence to take that kind of a bet you know, a, a yeah. multi-billion dollar bet that you're right. And so I wonder, is as you do this, ha, it, 
and maybe the Grove. How did you have the confidence to know that you were going to choose right on the distance of the streetscape and the height of the of the barriers and, and, and the sidewalks and stuff like that? Those details matter. Everything, everything matters in those at that size and scale delivering at once. Everything does matter. No, you're right. Everything does matter. I don't know. That's a really great question, man. I was just confident. I uh, listen. I, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. I see these things sort of develop in my head. I have a great team of people that helps work through things and we start seeing it come together on paper, but it's no different. Well, let me just back up. I believe that every property, no matter how great that property is, always has things to celebrate and things to isolate. And I'll give you the best example I have. Up at the Rosewood Miramar, we're on a beautiful beach, but we have a train that goes through that property. Yeah, I bet you do. My my big grand vision is I'm going to build a five-star hotel that has a train going through. And my, my dad, who was my best friend, was still alive at the time, and he said, you've lost your mind now. Now you've lost your mind. I mean, he didn't understand the Grove. He was a car guy. Uh-huh. But he saw that work out. He saw Americana work out, but he said, now you lost your mind. We, we couldn't isolate the train, so we had to celebrate the train. <laughs> and we did. And now the number one question for concierge up there is, what time is the train coming by? Because people love seeing it roll through. Now, from a design standpoint, we raised the grade. We made it a grade with a bar. We spent $50 on a bell. The bartender rings the bell when the train's about to come. Everybody starts cheering, right? So... It, it becomes a thing. It now becomes logical. Of course, there's a train. Right. There has to be a train, right? And of course, we did a lot to make sure no vibration for the rooms and sound attenuation and all that. But every property has had something like that. And I have found it when you take something like that and turn it into a positive. I don't know. Maybe it just gives me confidence. And it was like building the trolley at the Grove. People thought we were crazy. What the hell are you doing? Uh I said, I don't know. There's trolleys in every great city in the world. We used to have them in L.A. Right. So I don't know. Maybe it's been a little bit crazy. No, it's interesting. It's being crazy, but also remembering your heart. Because I know when I, again, when I was a kid and I visited these other countries in these streets and these places, I felt the coffee shop. I wish I was Howard Schultz because I wanted to invent Starbucks, right? And it's the same with what you're doing. And they did at Santana Row because I I know those guys, but it's they they had conviction to go there and you still have to work it to keep it right. How do you keep it fresh? And then we're going to move on to the next subject because these things often, they all, they can't get tired. Well said. That's exactly right. It's, It's constant reinvestment in the properties. It never stops. And it's not only reinvestment in the plants and the flowers and the sidewalks and all that kind of stuff. It's constant reinvestment in the retailers. I was going to ask that question. <laughs> we spend more time deleasing than leasing because when a retailer or a restaurateur has lost their way, no longer relevant, whatever the case is, we want that out of the property and the next one coming in. We run 100% occupied. We have a waiting list to be on all of our properties because we drive so much traffic that converts to revenue, obviously, for the restaurants and the tenants, the retailers. But you have to work it every day. There is no we're done. You're never done. 
do you have an option in your lease to kick someone out more than others might have if they're going to be tired or not meeting some protections? Some, some we do. Some we do. Others, if somebody is not doing great, they're probably happy to leave mm-hmm. um, at times. And, you know, we're always fair with retailers. We want to do the right thing in the long run because retailers come back. I mean, a good example is a Tiffany. I mean, look where Tiffany has now been reinvented. They've completely changed themselves. J. Crew was a dead brand and now it's hot again. So these things evolve and, you know, we want to evolve with them, but always keep a good relationship. <laughs> so talk in your business about moving into apartments and moving into hospitality. I think you have an office building too, which is really interesting in these times. Just talk yeah. about those other segments and how you bring this perspective to that business and how you decide what to go attack next because you're still growing. Well, the residential was just a logical extension for us because of wanting to have people live sort of in our environment. And um, here's the premise on the residential, what we build. The most valuable thing that all of us have and we can't get any more of is time. Mm-hmm. And so if you live with us and I can give you back time, you're going to pay a premium to live there. And the way we do that is we operate our residential very much like a hotel. You have room service, you have housekeeping, you have a concierge, you have all of these services that make your life simpler, easier, and it gives you back time. Mm-hmm. Time to spend with your family, your friends, et cetera. Or just time to come home and relax after a long day because you can call and have dinner brought up. And it just makes really logical sense on our mixed-use project because I have all these restaurants. You get a lot of choices of what can get brought up, right? And I've already got all the services there to support you. We're just bringing them to your front door. And so we want to do more residential, and we're very, very focused on that now. The hotel was very sort of logical in my mind because we are in the hospitality business on our retail properties. So building a hotel has always been a dream of mine because I love people and I love creating an environment where people can relax and enjoy themselves. And the, a resort is the great way to do it. I wouldn't want to own a business hotel. I want to own a resort. I want to, I want to own a place where people go and play and have fun. Yeah. And I, that's our business plan on that. And the office building, the only one we own, we own a very small one out in Thousand Oaks that's attached to our a property out there, the Promenade at Westlake. The larger one that we own is a great historic building that was built in the 30s as a Masonic temple. And it was across the street from the Americana brand. And it had sat empty for about 50 years. And it was decaying. And incredible architecture, just spectacular. And finally convinced the family to sell it. And uh, we completely redid it within the rules of being a landmark building. City of Glendale was great to work with. And it's now the headquarters for CBRE for their Southern California region. And they've done a great job on the inside. So uh, we're not in the office building business per se, but we've got one building that is a really special jewel and we're proud to own it. Cool. Well, ultra high-end office is doing really well and all the rest is struggling. That's right. So you're in the right spot. I want to change subjects. We don't have a lot of time to talk today. You have long been a civic leader. You ran for mayor. You're in a city like my city that's challenged in these times by a bunch of issues. 
and your philanthropist. So I want to talk about all those in the remaining time that we have, which isn't a lot. So start wherever you want to start, go after that stuff. Well, I love giving back and I love public service. I think public service is a very honorable career. And so I was very early on in, in my my lifespan, I was in my early 20s. I was tapped by Tom Bradley, who was mayor at the time of Los Angeles, to be a commissioner. Mm-hmm. Department of Water and Power. I was practicing law at the time. That's the largest public utility in the country. And it was an amazing experience. It was an amazing experience working for Tom Bradley, who I really admire, and serving the city and a cool the cool thing to do is learn about water rights and building public power plants. And I mean, my God, what a steep learning curve that was. And I actually then worked under Dick Reardon and worked under Jimmy Hahn, became the police commissioner under Jimmy Hahn. And I love that. It was a tough, it was tough because I had to change management, rebuild the department, brought in Bill Bratton, who's a legendary chief of police when I was commissioner. But I really got the bug on public service. And I always thought about one day I'd love to be mayor. Never thought about wanting to be governor or president or senator. I love the idea of being mayor because you're really with the people. You're at the mm-hmm. people. That you're In fact, their home, their life, their job, the parks, everything that adds to quality of life or impacts quality of life. And so, you know, there was an opportunity to, to run a year ago, and I did, and, you know, ran against five very well-established career politicians and, uh, you know, worked hard to get into the runoff and it, it didn't it turn out the way I wanted it to, uh, lost the race, but it was a great experience. And I would, I would never change anything about it other than probably the end result, but we had a great experience as a family, getting to know the city better, meeting incredible people throughout the city at every at every different demographic and culture and area. It was just a beautiful experience. So I loved it. And I, I don't know if I'll ever do it again. It depends. But and then on the on the philanthropy. Let me interrupt you for one sec. Yeah. It's interesting. The great experience, if you had been running for president, but, but, well, I'd either say please do or please don't. I don't know the right word for that. But yeah. no one would describe that as a beautiful experience. But I think you're right about mayoral races and local government is it touches people. It's close enough to the ground that you could actually, that it's real. Yeah, I think that's right. But you know what I learned being a commissioner, especially when I was the police commissioner, because it was a wild ride. And it was a very, very tough period in the city of Los Angeles. Crime had spiked. Officers were leaving. Uh, We just came off of the Rodney King beating. Mm -hmm. The LAPD was under a federal consent decree. It was a very toxic, explosive time in Los Angeles. What I learned is the beauty I had, the real power I had was I wasn't into it for a career. Right. I would tell the mayor, Jimmy Hahn, I said, listen, fire me anytime you want. If you don't like what I'm doing, fire me. Otherwise, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do what I think is for the best of the residents of Los Angeles, pure and simple, not to get reelected, not to get reappointed, not to do anything else. That provides fuel. Mm -hmm. It's liberating. Mm -hmm. The problem with most people that are running for public office, not it's their career. They're horrified with the idea that they might have to go get a real job. They got to get reelected. It's what defines them. Yep. And when I was running, I think if I was running for president, I'd have a great time because 
I if I lose, I come back to a great life, a great family, a great business, and I love being around people. So I would love to go around the country meeting people. Oh, well, well, we'll see what happens with that one. Well, what is your thinking at the moment about our broken West Coast cities, and broken might be a strong word, but they're struggling. Our struggling West Coast cities, I'm in San Francisco or I'm outside San Francisco. We have our challenges. You have your challenges in L.A. Both of them have the common challenge of homelessness, people who are not currently housed. Yeah. And But it's, it's deeper than that because also work from home has emptied some of the office buildings and all that stuff. Any comments about how to get out of that cycle that's not working well? Yeah, elect courageous leaders that actually are willing to do the right thing rather than be overly concerned about getting reelected and that really understand that there's a solution to every problem. It may not be easy and it may be politically tough, but that's what you're getting paid for and go out and get your job done. And your number one job is to protect the safety and the well-being of the residents that you serve. You have a sacred duty to do that but also to have a city that's livable and people can have a job and people can raise a family. And I think we've had elected officials in a lot of the cities that just don't understand that or have policies that don't work, but they continue to try to repeat them. And that's the definition of, you know, being crazy. You just continue to repeat what doesn't work. And uh, so it's, it really, to me, comes down to, the electorate has to decide to vote in people that can really make change for the better. And I think we've seen it time and time again, a lot of people don't vote. And that's really right. what's impacting, I think, this country mm-hmm. in a negative way. The issue of homelessness, we've had guests, multiple guests on the podcast talking about that challenge. And it's a real estate challenge as well as a supply challenge. It's a many faceted challenge. There's no one answer. There's 15 complicated answers and they cost a lot of money too. Right. And so it's not just, we got to have change. We have to have the right change that will work and the patience to go through a couple of cycles to keep at the problem in a way that's going to work. No doubt. But there are models that do work and you should build on those models. And in Los Angeles, and I would think San Francisco is the same. It's not a shortage of money. It's a shortage of doing the right thing. And if something isn't working, pivot quickly and do it differently. Mm-hmm. We're not building in Los Angeles. You need housing. We need housing. Low-income housing, sustainable housing, luxury housing, moderate housing. We need housing. It's not getting built. It's not a priority. You can never solve the homeless problem if you're not building housing. So, you know, you can fill up as many motels as you want. You're not creating one more house, one more apartment, and you'll never solve the problem. It may look nice on a headline for 24 hours, but that's that's not what your job is to create a headline. Your job is to actually go save a life on the street and get them off and give them the services they need and the dignity they deserve as a human being. Well, you've had some success with NIMBYs in your projects because you're known for being able to get things entitled that the NIMBYs won't, they, that, not that, right, the NIMBYs won't want to do. The NIMBYs will, but the NIMBYs won't. But that's a, that's a simple formula, too, that we sit and we listen. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you want. Tell us what you don't want. Tell us how we can help your community. And then we actually, once we build, we stay involved and we give back. And we're, we're part of the community. 
And, you know, there was an article years ago that said something to the effect that did the Grove become part of Los Angeles or did Los Angeles become part of the Grove? And I really love that because if we build something that feels seamless and organic mm-hmm. and people adopt as their own, then we've done our job well. And then we just have to keep exceeding their expectations every single day. Really well said. It's interesting. One thing I say on the podcast often is that two of the dirty words in the English language in popular culture are developer and landlord. Mm-hmm. And, and we or you are both. But if we, defi- reta- if we reclaim those words... <laughs> Yeah, you're right. In the right right. way. And that's the the goal of our industry. We have to do that uh, because we're citizens and we're the solution and the problem, depending on how we're doing our jobs. That's exactly right. Well said. So philanthropy and then the last question on on leading voices. You're a philanthropist. One thing I think of in philanthropy as compared to politics, politics may be around policy and philanthropy may be around touching individuals. Mm. So... Talk, and I don't know if that's true for you, but I'll, I'll just let you go there. But, but talk about the work that you do philanthropically and particularly in Los Angeles. No, that's well said. What I hope in our, our philanthropy is that there's an intersection between the politics and the, and the helping people and touching people's hearts. Uh, our focus, I, I, I've learned from a lot of great philanthropists that in order to make an impact, you have to stay focused. You don't want to have this sort of BB shot approach. And our focus are families at or below the poverty line to provide health care and education. And we go into areas that are the most impacted financially in Los Angeles and help those kids go to school, stay safe, get the health care that they need. Uh, everybody in the family is involved. I'm a big believer that we are not just about writing a check. We want to go there and work and get to know the families and the kids, and we do. And we love it. And it sounds corny, but it has given back to us more than we've ever given to them because it really has enriched our life. The relationships that we've created, the friendships we've created. And my kids are from such a different world, obviously, are close and friendly and stay connected to these kids that are living in the housing projects in some of the worst conditions you can imagine. And they genuinely care for each other. And I just love that. And so that's what fuels us. And we're trying to do as much as we can. And we're, we're honored that we have the ability to do it. Keep it going. Thank you. Thank you. Last question on leading voices is your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. I would say break the rules or don't learn the rules or maybe learn the rules and then break the rules. But really follow your heart in this. I think that's in anything. And that dream big and then go execute on it. And anybody that stops that, I would run the opposite direction. But you have to work hard. I mean, it's not easy. And um, you got to outwork your competition. You got to outsmart your competition. But I've always believed, and I, I don't say this out of pain humility, I've never been the smartest guy in the room. But I'm always confident that I can outwork most anybody in the room. Mm -hmm. And I'll keep working to do the right thing. And I think that's what you do as a young entrepreneur. And you do it when you're my age at 64 as a senior entrepreneur. You just keep innovating, thinking, creative, and have fun. Just have fun. I love it. And the part that I'm taking from this from the beginning of the conversation, I'm going back to 20-year-old 
going and visiting Italy and visiting family and seeing something that feels good and letting that last in their life and invest in their outlook on what they're going to create because you knew it was right. You knew it has worked for a thousand years and it might still. Yeah, that's and right. It's it almost is. the opposite of innovation, but it's the combination of tied, tried and true and tested and innovation at the same time. Cause it's bringing back those things. No, that's, that's exactly right. And I learned from studying Steve jobs. The genius of Steve jobs was never inventing anything. Mm-hmm. He didn't invent the portable phone. He made it better and he convinced you that you needed it, that it, it, it increased your quality of life. So I didn't ever invent the Piazza. Mm-hmm. I just took it and said, how am I going to make it accessible and relevant and feel organic to the people that are going to enjoy it in Los Angeles? I've never invented anything. <laughs> I've innovated. That's yeah. different being innovative than being an inventor. I love it. It's beautiful. Thank you for that. It's a perfect explanation, a perfect way to end the conversation. And Rick, thank you. I look forward to visiting the Grove, and I'll see you in a few weeks at ULI. I look forward to it. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me on. And thanks to your team for doing this. This wasn't easy, so we're good. We're good. I got a great team. Thanks for saying. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.